Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Immediately before the onset of the Iditarod sled dog race, the 2019 version, I happened to see a news report from where the race starts in Anchorage, Alaska. And the clip showed excited and anxiously barking dogs who admittedly did not look sick or unhappy. And the reporter proclaimed those dogs look very happy. And she continued, I know some people think this race amounts to animal cruelty. And she repeated, but look how happy these dogs are. And you know, just from this one brief report, I can see where viewers might agree with her. So now that this year's race is completed, I'd like to talk about the cruelty of the Iditarod, the famous or infamous sled dog race held in Alaska each year at the beginning of March. The route is a thousand plus miles from Anchorage to Nome, Alaska. The dogs with dog sled drivers or mushers in tow must run the grueling trails across frozen rivers on dangerous paths and up steep hills in temperatures that average 20 below zero and can reach 40 or 50 below zero. The dog teams race through frozen tundra at speeds of roughly 14 miles per hour. They have 8 to 15 days to complete this 1,000-mile challenge. So just think for a minute about the distance. The fastest dogs are forced to run almost 90 miles per day every day before they could really recover and rest. In the history of this race, many dogs have perished. And I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But it makes you wonder about the owners of the dogs, the sponsors of the race, and the fans or attendees. Like, why do they disregard the well-being of the dogs? Following the 2019 Iditarod, Oshi, a five-year-old female dog on the race team of musher Richie Beattie, died of pneumonia only a couple days after completing the race. Beatty was on his way to securing the Iditarod Rookie of the Year Award, completing the course in just over 11 days and 7 hours. Video aired on KTVA TV News Alaska showed Beatty and his dogs coming into the finish in Nome, at which point Beatty removes a dog who is being carried to the finish line from his sled. The dog is stumbling and hardly able to stand up as Beatty reconnects her to the tow line. On the video, a reporter can clearly be heard asking Biddy, is your dog okay? To which he replies, yeah, she's just tired. An Iditarod Trail Committee spokesperson confirmed that the dog carried by sled to the finish was Oshi, who was flown to Anchorage for emergency care the next day, which was Friday. She died on Saturday. In a Facebook post on March 16th, Biddy's kennel mentioned the death of Oshi and stated, a few hours from the finish, Richie noticed something was off about Oshi and immediately carried her in the sled to the finish. So here's the question. Why would someone take a dog who is too ill to finish the race, a dog who clearly couldn't stand up on her own, a dog which we later learned was so sick she died two days after the race, out of the sled she was being carried in and reattach her to the tow line. It sounds inhumane at best, but take a closer look and you will see that the Iditarod is built on a long history of animal cruelty, injured, discarded, and dead dogs. The Iditarod website calls the event 
as the last great race and describes it as 1,000 miles of the roughest, most beautiful terrain Mother Nature has to offer. Fortunately, the race is coming under greater criticism for the way dogs are bred, trained for races, housed in kennels, cared for after the races, and often discarded when they don't perform. And it's pertinent to note that these dogs are exempt from animal welfare protection laws. This is in large part because of loopholes that exist in the laws that govern sled dog sports. Sled dogs lack much needed legal protection because they are considered livestock, making them exempt from animal welfare protection laws that oversee house pets. The 30th Alaska State Legislature, 2017 to 2018, states that pet means a vertebrate living creature maintained for companionship or pleasure. This does not include dogs who are owned for mushing or pulling contests and sports. Is this crazy or what? These dogs that any normal person would consider to be pets or would hope that they would be treated as loving pets have virtually no legal protection from harm or cruelty. Because according to the 30th Alaska State Legislature, they are not pets to their owners because they are not, quote, maintained for companionship or pleasure. Loopholes and regulations have made it possible for mushers to operate what would be regarded as breeding mills, provide inadequate or no medical care for sick and injured dogs, beat dogs, and even kill and discard dogs they no longer see as fit to race. And get this, from 2002 through 2016, the percentage of dogs who started but did not complete the race ranged anywhere from 42% to as high as 63%. Although these statistics are readily available on the Iditarod website, the public is rarely told any information about what happens to the dogs who do not complete the race or what happens to the dogs after the race. And this is very important. In 2002, researchers examined the airways of 59 sled dogs 24 to 48 hours after they completed the Iditarod. These findings, which are published in the September issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, indicated that 81% of the dogs who finished the race have lung damage. 81%. That means that 11 or 12 dogs out of a sled dog team of 14 could suffer permanent lung damage. Training, racing, and sleep deprivation are all bitter facts of life for sled dogs. They're also among the top causes of stress in dogs. Combine them and they can be deadly. A study out of Ohio State University showed that dogs who race only 260 miles, right, not 1,000 miles like the Iditarod, so that's just, say, a bit more than a quarter of the length of the Iditarod, were under so much stress that their cortisol levels were elevated as much as 900%. Cortisol is the hormone that is known to be associated with significant stress. Increased cortisol levels can lead to a weakened immune system and inability to fight off illnesses and deterioration of overall health. Stress causes dogs to lose fur, putting them at risk in the frigid Alaskan climate. Former mushers tell stories of dogs fighting with other dogs at checkpoints and during rest breaks and on the trail. Again, this is probably from the high level of stress the dogs are under. 
Some dogs died during fights, while others were forced to continue the race despite severe puncture wounds and facial injuries and crushing injuries to the legs. And it's not uncommon for dogs to become injured or killed while training for the Iditarod from tangles in the gang lines. So the gang lines are the ropes that connect the dogs to each other and to the sled. A report in the Anchorage Daily News on December 31st, 2009, told of one such incident where nine of 10 sled dogs that kept going when their musher fell off survived two days of tangles, fights, and hunger while trapped together on their gang line till they were rescued. Upon the rescue, one dog was found strangled to death amid the tangle of harnesses. One of the Iditarod's dirty secrets is what happens to those dogs who absolutely cannot continue racing, such as the severely injured who are holding the team back. These are dogs who have gotten tangled in the tow lines while pulling the sleds. Dogs suffered from bleeding ulcers, pneumonia, ruptured discs, frostbite, viral diseases, kennel cough, broken bones, and torn muscles. During the race, these sick and injured dogs are brought to what is referred to as drop dog areas. Drop dog areas. And get this, media personnel does not have access to these sites, so the public does not see pictures or stories about what these dogs go through. The public is never told the ultimate fate of these dogs. Why the secrecy? You can guess. Mushers and reporters alike tell stories of numerous dogs and entire dog sled teams racing with diarrhea. One study found a strong association between racing and the presence of blood, mucus, or both in the feces. In this particular study, nearly half of the dogs studied during racing displayed gross evidence of gastrointestinal bleeding. Ashley Keith, a former musher from New York, got her first look at the behind-the-scenes racing world when she went to Alaska in 2003. There she worked at the kennel of Mitch Seavey, father of a musher who was investigated for animal cruelty allegations last fall after pictures from the kennel surfaced. In an interview with the Dodo, Kitty said she was heartbroken by what she saw. She described puppies and young dogs living outside in Alaska in November... They were on short change with uninsulated dog houses. She said some of them were ill. One dog in particular did not eat for days and was not tended to, despite Keith's pleas to management to get him veterinary help. Keith said in an interview, on that third day that Frank didn't eat, Mitch put him in his truck. When he came back, the dog was nowhere to be seen. He killed him. These are not isolated incidents. Since the Iditarod began in 1973, at least 154 dogs are known to have died during the race. 154. Five dogs died in 2017 alone. No official count of dog deaths was made in the early years, so the number is no doubt higher. And the number 154 refers only to deaths during the race, not to later deaths that result from racing. There are also no records of dogs that die during training. Okay, we're approaching a hard break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the sponsors of the Iditarod and ways you can help end this unnecessary cruelty. Don't go away. You're listening to Animals Today. 
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Continuing my thoughts about the Iditarod. So despite the inarguable cruelty that is inherent in the Iditarod, and even as opposition becomes more vocal, Iditarod continues to gain popularity and garners more sponsors. Sponsors include ExxonMobil, Anchorage Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, Ryanair, Providence Alaska Health and Services, just to name a few. You can see all the sponsors by going to the race website. Now, with corporate sponsors come more substantial prize winnings and increasing number of entrants. This has opened the door for a dark underbelly where some mushers will go to more extreme means disregarding the extent of the suffering of their dogs. This is not about the fun of the race or the challenge. This is about the money, the winning, and the tourism industry created by the sled dog racing culture. If you didn't hear about Oshi's death this past March, that might be why. In our view, sled racing or any activity in which animals are exploited for entertainment, such as greyhound racing, horse racing, and rodeo, is simply immoral. And it's even worse when deaths of the participants are an accepted part of the culture. It is often said by supporters of dog racing and laypersons alike that sled dogs, commonly Alaskan Huskies, a mixed breed with Siberian Husky, love to run and live for the sport. Of course, Husky mixes are bred for cold weather. They are strong, working dogs who need a way to channel their energy. But any dog, given a choice, would prefer to live indoors, side by side with its human companions, rather than outside on short chains with little protection from the elements in sub-zero degree temperatures. The dogs that run the Iditarod can't possibly love being forced to run for hours on end through frozen rivers, desolate tundra, and jagged mountain ranges. They can't possibly love being beaten with whips and made to run 100 miles each day with paws that are cut by ice, bruised and bleeding. What's to love about having to run, being forced to continue running, even while sick with pneumonia, bleeding stomach ulcers and stress fractures? Add to that the conditions these dogs are running in, biting winds and often whiteout snowstorms. Oh, and let's not forget that they are tethered to 400-pound sleds wearing harnesses that are often cutting into their skin and shoulders. Although certain dogs may be physically bred for strength and stamina, dogs have no say in their participation in these races. Human athletes presumably know the risks they take on and have the opportunity to opt out. Animals do not. We should be the protectors and the voices of animals. 
We must work together to end this unnecessary cruelty and end it now. Here are some things you can do to oppose the Iditarod's deadly race and ongoing animal cruelty. Contact the sponsors of the Iditarod and let them know you oppose animal cruelty. Go to the website and see who the sponsors are and send emails to the CEOs of these companies. Educate your friends and get them to do the same. If you're planning a trip to Alaska, be sure to let your travel agent know that you do not want any packages that include dog sled rides because they all support the industry. Write letters of opposition to the editors of local newspapers. Do not attend the Iditarod or other sled dog races. Do not patronize businesses that offer sled dog rides. And again, educate your friends and relatives about the cruelty of the Iditarod and sled dog racing. Please remember Oshi, five years old, who might have been your beloved companion, killed by a very cruel industry. Please help put an end to the Iditarod. Dr. Lori Kirshner with the Animals Today Minute. Are you a rabbit person? Ever wonder if your family would enjoy living with one or more of these fun, furry, lovable animals? Well, first you got to do your homework. Rabbits need safe indoor spaces free from electrical wires they can chew. But chew they will, so you'll need to provide them with safe, chewable toys and keep them away from any furniture you like. Rabbits will learn to use the litter box. Use positive reinforcement to train them to do so. And you will need to provide a healthy diet for your rabbits. But it's easy. Mostly hay, some leafy greens, and some rabbit pellets. Rabbits should be fixed to decrease marking, lessen aggression, and give them longer, happier lives. And of course, when you're finally ready, make sure to adopt and not to buy your new family member. Just check out one of the many rabbit rescue organizations to find one or more rabbits that have the right personality for your family. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Well, Lori, here's another uh, survey about top dog-friendly cities, this one for 2019. This one has an interesting twist. Rover, rover rover.com, the dog-walking people, has teamed up with Redfin. Redfin is the real estate brokerage, and they uh, put their data together. Overall, the rover rank of various cities for walkability and how long the walks are and stuff like that. So the top dog-friendly cities based on their overall rover rank, Seattle number one, Chicago number two, number three was Denver, four Manhattan, New York, and five Washington, D.C. Surprising, these urban areas. Yeah, yeah. And it continues with Portland, Los Angeles, Brooklyn, San Francisco, San Diego, and they go down to all the way number 20, Nashville, Tennessee. So that's the overall rover rank. Then in those urban areas, looking at the Redfin data, when a house is listed, they search for the keyword dog, meaning that it was probably dog friendly or a nice place for a dog to live and indicated the percentage of listings that had that keyword. And so it turns out the percentage in even our highest ranked cities is not that high. And the highest percentage uh, city was Atlanta. That means in only 5% of the listings was the term dog found. Most of the city's listings had only 2 or 3% of the listings having the keyword dog. Now, if I was home shopping, 
I would love to see that the neighborhood was dog friendly or the home had a great yard for a dog, wouldn't you? You bet. Yeah. So I was surprised to see that. You know, we see surveys like this pretty often. They all use their own parameters on how they rate the dog friendly cities. Yeah. So you get a little bit of different information. I don't think you can unify them in any way. One element in this study, they've got the walk score and uh, the cities with the highest walk score in this one were Manhattan, Brooklyn, and San Francisco. They were 89, 89, and 86, respectively. The lowest walk scores were garnered by Austin, Texas, and Arlington, Virginia at 40 and 37. The other result that was published as part of this one was the most common breed in each of these top 20 cities. And leading the pack with 11 of the cities indicated mixed breed as their most popular dog. Good. That. Yeah. Uh, there were four cities with Labrador Retriever, a couple with Pitbull Mix. Which city do you think had French Bulldog as the most popular dog breed? Manhattan. I'll just answer that for you. They sort of split off Manhattan and Brooklyn from the rest of New York City. And how about in Los Angeles? Can you guess that one? Chihuahua. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. We know that to be factual. Okay, so there's the latest version of dog-friendly cities. More with animals today, right after the break. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. Do you ever wonder what you can do to be nicer to animals and to help them? Here are a few things you can do to show your appreciation to our furry friends. You can donate to or volunteer at your local animal shelter. Walking the dogs and playing with the cats is a meaningful way to make a difference in the lives of homeless animals in our shelters. You can be a foster parent if you have the extra time and space. Becoming a foster parent is a wonderful way to take some of the burden off our overcrowded shelters by giving an animal a loving place to live until a forever home is found. Increase your appreciation for wildlife by providing a welcoming space around your home for butterflies, hummingbirds, and other creatures. Also, by simply driving cautiously through areas populated by wildlife such as deer, you're acting with compassion. These are only a few ideas to encourage you to continue thinking about acting kindly towards animals. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Visitors to Havasu Falls near Supai, Arizona, are drawn to its natural beauty and the soothing blue-green color of its pool. North of Flagstaff and at the southwest corner of the Grand Canyon National Park, the falls are not easy to get to and a long hike is required. Well, there is extensive use of pack animals, horses and mules, to move the requisite gear and the provisions down to the falls and back up, and now there's extensive documentation of severe and ongoing cruelty to these animals. With us today is Susan Ash, founder of SAVE. Susan, what is SAVE? SAVE is an advocacy group that was formed by me in February of 2016 after having heard numerous stories about the horrible, and I mean horrible, abuse of uh, pack animals by the Havasupai tribe in Grand Canyon and hearing 
people say over and over again, well, there's nothing that can be done about it because it's sovereign land. I just got fed up hearing that and said, I'm sorry, but there has to be something that can be done. The word abuse doesn't really describe what these animals endure before they die. Well, describe the overall situation uh, and your main areas of concern. The animals are often forced to run up and down portions of a 16 to 18 mile round trip trail. They're heavily loaded with gear that often exceeds a reasonable weight for a healthy animal, let alone an underweight one. Temperatures in the summer often exceed 100 degrees at the top, which is called uh, Wallapai Hilltop. They're given no water, no food, no shade, and are frequently tied up for hours and in some instances even days. Horses in the village are seen wandering, scavenging for food. They have been observed eating cardboard and feces and rummaging through trash cans. The horses are often tied together using a come-along method. This is considered cruel and dangerous by any responsible packer because an animal not keeping up will be choked by this method and entire strings have fallen off the trail together. Horses collapse. Frequently on the trail, they are kicked or otherwise beaten to make them get up. If they do so, then they must continue on the trail. If they don't, then they may be left on the trail to die, occasionally eaten alive by feral dogs, or pushed over the side of the trail to certain deaths in the canyon. Injured, bleeding, emaciated horses are all worked. There is blood seen on the trail and on the tack used for packing. The worst is frequently hidden under the packs. Infected wounds, exposed bone all along the spine are not uncommon sites when pack saddles are removed. There is a photograph that we have of a very young foal frantically trying to run alongside its mother as she is forced up the trail packing. There is no oversight or enforcement of any standards of care or treatment for the pack animals by the Havasupai tribe. They make millions of dollars every year off of tourism and There is a a population of approximately 400 tribal members that live down there. So even when people hear, for example, that there are, quote-unquote, new standards that have been in place or put in place by the tribe, that is a very misleading statement, and it's misleading because, again, there's no enforcement of anything. So obviously it doesn't matter what kinds of words are written on pages if nothing is being enforced. There are no weight limits, there are no scales, there is no water at Hilltop, and the list goes on and on. There are lots of uh, testimonials that you've published of travelers and adventure-seeking, you know, vacationers taking photographs and documenting the cruelty. Uh, This has got to be getting out somehow, right? Well, it is getting out. And it's only been getting out, quite frankly, since SAVE has been organized in 2016. It, it seems unimaginable, but it, nobody has taken this on until I formed SAVE. Hmm. We do know that there have been other people and other organizations over the years who have tried to go down there and have some sort of impact, but they have been wholly unsuccessful and they have not publicized the reality. We are the only ones who have publicized it. And therefore, directly as a result of that, um, the tribe has banned me from their land and banned anybody connected to my organization 
they're trying to kill the messenger instead of addressing the problem. So it's not like they're open to dialogue with you. No, we've tried on more than one occasion, and we either get met with silence or threats from tribal attorneys regarding um, lawsuits or cease and desist uh, requirements and so forth. A few years ago, a horse owner was charged with felony animal cruelty. Can you tell us what happened in that case, and how is it that charges were able to be brought at all since this seems to be all under the jurisdiction of the tribe? Yes, I can. And and it is possible to do, which is one of the frustrations with all of this, because state law can be incorporated and there are other, um, and I'm obviously not an attorney, but somewhat creative ways to actually prosecute. Um, They are not above and completely sovereign. They're not above the law and completely sovereign. They rely on a lot of federal programs and the BIA is a federal agency, and they provide law enforcement, so it can be done. But the case that you're referring to was um, one of the first successes that we had very early into this whole process. It was in April of 2016, after I had met with the district attorney and the BIA and the FBI, actually, all in one meeting. And told them what I was planning on doing and just pushing for action. And as a result, they they did. <laughs> um, and I was waiting at Hilltop the entire day for these four horses that uh, were of huge concern that I had found out about several months before. Um, before they were gotten out of there. But the, the owner of the horse, the four horses, was a tribal member by the name of Leland Joe, and there were several agencies involved in this, and they flew in on a helicopter uh, one one morning and knocked on this guy's door. The four horses were in his yard, tied up with, of course, no food and no water, and as, my, as I am told by the district attorney's office, and he answered and was asked, are these your horses? She said, yes. They said, you're under arrest, and he was flown out right then and there and taken to federal prison in Flagstaff, and um, he was charged and pled guilty uh, to lesser charges, but was fined, put on a three-year probation uh, where he was not allowed to own horses, work with horses, etc. However, at some point, he apparently decided to serve out his prison term and end the probation. And I heard last summer that he was actually back at it again. Mm. Um, So did that case result in other tribe members treating their horses and mules better? No. No. Yeah. So to be clear, these animals, they are just of very little value and they are just worked to death and they just die? Correct. That's exactly it. Mm. Uh, they don't feed them frequently through the winter. Um, they never feed them enough when the season starts, um, as evidenced by, you know, many, many, many people coming back extremely upset by what they have seen. I could read you a couple of examples of that if you would like. Well, I'll let uh, I'll let listeners go to your website to see where you document okay. them. But explain briefly how the tour organizations are complicit in this. Well, the adventure travel companies have been offering trips 
down into Supai for many years now, and um, but I need to make clear right now, uh, as of 2019, the tribe has not issued any permits for these outfitters uh, to work to offer trips down there. Now, that may sound better than it really is, <laughs> because it doesn't mean that the same things aren't happening. What it means is that they're out for this year. It doesn't mean they're out forever. They could just as easily be back next year. But the part that is good is that, you know, these outfitters were basically turning a blind eye to the abuse. They were using abused animals, whether they wanted to ever admit that or not. None of them that I spoke to ever did. And they were offering luxurious trips, saying you'll get the best gourmet meals, oversized tents, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what that translates to is that all these excessive amenities were going down on the backs of starving, bleeding, yeah. abused animals. Yeah. So let's say I wanted to experience the beauty of those falls. Can I just hike down there or get helicoptered in there? Yes, you can. Absolutely. And, you know, we really have never, as an organization, told people not to go there. But what we have wanted to do, well, two things. One is expose the abuse and say it in the strongest terms possible under no conditions use or hire those pack animals for any reason whatsoever. And number two, to actually be aware of what you're going to be seeing down there besides pretty waterfalls, because yes, they're very pretty, but there are lots of other very pretty places that have blue-green waterfalls that don't have dying and bleeding and abused animals and trash everywhere, and campgrounds, frankly, that uh, smell like urine, Mm. because we've had many people write to TripAdvisor and said that very thing. They don't understand why this place is being hyped so much. What a story. Susan Ash, where can people go to learn more and to help you? Well, they can go to our website, which is havasupaihorses.org, also for a Facebook page, and to get active about this issue in your community and on social media. We need the truth exposed to a wider audience so that everyone who goes there or considers going knows about this and never considers hiring the pack animals, or better yet, don't go at all. Susan Ash, founder of SAFE, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. More with animals today after the break. Dr. Lori Kirshner with Animals Today. Today's Animals Today Minute is about giraffe hunting. Within the limitless grassy African plains lies the mighty giraffe, sharing its home with zebras, antelope, lions, cheetahs, and various other animals that make their home in the heart of Africa. These beautiful creatures face deforestation, agricultural conversion, and poaching. Their population has declined at least 40% over the past decade. Today, there are only approximately 80,000 giraffe left in the world. Giraffe numbers are shrinking, and their conservation status is vulnerable on the IUCN red list of threatened species, and the killing of these docile vegetarians continues. Besides the pressure of habitat loss, legal hunting and illegal poaching both occur. 
Giraffe trophy hunting tourism can be lucrative for the operators and can charge as much as $15,000 for a trip guaranteeing a kill. Illegal sport hunting is also reported to be prevalent. And poachers continue their own killing, seeking meat and coats primarily. Another factor contributing to the poaching crisis is the use of parts of the tail as a dowry to the fathers of prospective brides in certain cultures. The animals are literally being killed just to obtain the tail. And, as we've heard before, enforcement of wildlife protection laws is extremely challenging. So please check out the important work of Giraffe Conservation Foundation, African Wildlife Foundation, World Wildlife Foundation, and Wildlife Conservation Society to learn more and to see how you can help protect these gentle giants. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that was your Animals Today Minute. Welcome back. I am pleased to be speaking again with Dr. Lori Marino from the Camilla Center for Animal Advocacy. And I wanted to speak with you, Lori, because um, I received an alert the other day about a bill in Canada uh, which would ban all whale and dolphin captivity. And this alert explained uh, that the legislation was in jeopardy. There was a scheme to torpedo what is a otherwise very good idea. So we wanted you to give us a little background and explain what What's going on, please? Yes, well, uh, thank you for having me, Peter. I am very happy to be here to tell you that that didn't happen. Uh, that uh, Canadian Bill S203 uh, went through the House the other day with no amendments. And what that means is it can now go into a final vote next month. And if that vote goes well, then it would become law. So things changed uh, drastically from one day to the next, and I think we're all still stunned. Wow, that's great. What are the provisions of the bill? What would the law do? The law would ban keeping dolphins and whales on display in Canada for uh, entertainment purposes. It would also ban breeding them in captivity and importing them for the purpose of display. It would not ban uh, keeping animals for rehabilitation purposes, nor would it ban uh, seaside sanctuaries. And it also grandfathers in those dolphins and whales who are currently at the two facilities that hold them in Canada. So explain what that means. So what that means is that any dolphins or whales who are currently in Canada in captivity uh, will be allowed to stay there. The bill will not force them out. And that is uh, something that uh, has a lot of uh, meaning for one facility and not another. So the Vancouver Aquarium only has one little dolphin left. Mm. And they would be prohibited from taking any more and putting them on display. On the other hand, you have Marineland Canada in Niagara Falls, and they have 58 beluga whales, uh, one orca, and I think three or four dolphins. And all of those would be grandfathered in as well. So there's still a lot of animals who would be, you know, on display and in captivity in Canada uh, if this bill goes through, but it would definitely phase it out in the future. 
What's the sentiment of your Canadian citizenry? Do they want these belugas to be uh, relocated, or are they okay where, where they are in Niagara Falls? Well, I think first things first, I think there's been an overwhelming support for this bill. And the bill, by the way, was initiated by uh, Senator Wilfred Moore, who was in the Senate and actually has been three and a half years in the making. But there's been an overwhelming response from the public. They don't have an appetite for seeing these animals in tanks, in concrete tanks, performing anymore. And now, if it goes through to royal assent, what's called royal assent, and becomes law, then the question will be, you know, what will happen with all of these animals? But that's a separate issue. And if we get this bill passed, that will be unprecedented. I mean, it will just be uh, a bill that really puts Canada in the lead, uh, heads and tails above the United States in terms of of how it relates to these animals and whether they should be in, in confinement or not. What sorts of influence, what sorts of tools are used by people who do not live in Canada or groups that are not based in Canada to uh, impact the Canadian legislative system? Well, you know, as an American, I was, I testified in support of the bill a couple of years ago as a scientist to talk about the the ways that dolphins and whales suffer in concrete tanks and to answer questions about, you know, the claims that going to see these animals in shows is somehow educational or uh, contributes to conservation. The answer is no. Uh, And so basically uh, those of us who have some expertise can can lend that expertise uh, to the issue. People, scientists from all over the world came in to to talk about the science behind the bill. Uh, But, you know, there's all kinds of ways that people from other countries, including the United States, can get involved by supporting the bill through Twitter, through Instagram, through social media. There's, there's been a lot of, of involvement for people outside of Canada. And I think also, you know, one of the things that we can do is, is tell our legislators here in the United States, look what Canada has done. How about we do the same? Yeah, great idea. Okay, so for those who want to find you and learn more about uh, what's happening and all your other activities, uh, where do they go? Well, uh, I'm the president of the Whale Sanctuary Project, and we post on this all the time. And they can go to www.whalesanctuary.org. Thanks, Dr. Lori Marino. Speak to you soon. Okay, thank you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.